you would, open your Bibles now this morning to John's Gospel, John's Gospel, chapter 1, this morning. As you're turning there, I want you to, in your mind, go back for a moment in time and reflect the a place that you've been where there was a a group gathered together. Maybe it was something like what we see going on all around us at this time of year, a graduation of some sort where a a keynote speaker is asked to come and to address the graduates and address the crowd. Maybe it's a conference where there are assembled a host of speakers. And perhaps one of the speakers or the speaker, as the case might be, is brought before you and they're well-known, they're well-appreciated, they're well-loved, they've been helpful to many people in some way, and the person introducing that speaker gets up and they begin to take away their heavenly reward by their over-exuberance in introducing them and declaring all their accolades and their credentials, and it becomes a bit much, and you've probably seen that happen. You've probably been there when it happened. And it's easy to, in our excitement in such times, to overstate a mere mortal, isn't it? We're excited about the person. We're excited about maybe what they've accomplished. We're proud of them and just thrilled to be in their presence. And so our introductions can go a little overboard. There's one person for whom it would be impossible, and I use the word impossible in its most literal, technical sense, it would be impossible for any one of us to overstate his magnificence. You know of whom I speak because the book on your lap this morning testifies to him. I speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be impossible for any of us, were we given all the words in all the languages of all the world, and given all the time in eternity, we would not be able to overstate the magnificence, the significance, the worth, and the majesty of Jesus Christ. That is not possible. In fact, John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tries to do it, doesn't he? He tries to give us the the fullest, most robust picture, the most glorious picture of Jesus that that a human man could possibly think to speak. And he gets to the end of the letter and he concludes this. This book isn't large enough to contain it. In fact, he says in John chapter 20 and verse 31, that we're all the world filled with books, extolling the glories of Jesus, even the world couldn't contain it. So it is, as we come to John's Gospel this morning, how do you accurately, fully describe God? And I'm here to tell you, you can't. But we can try. And so we come this morning to John's Gospel again, after a brief interlude over the last few Sundays, we come to resume our study of John's Gospel. But before we jump into chapter 6, which is where we left off, I want to 
take some time this morning and just go back and review where we've been, because I think that will be helpful to all of us to pick back up where we need to pick up. But, but I want us to begin by reviewing where we've been for the first five chapters. As we look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these are books that are filled with many wonderful memories for those of you who've read through them. There are sermons that Jesus has preached. There are miracles that Jesus has worked. There are parables that Jesus has given to help us understand heavenly truths using earthly examples. And whatever else the Gospels are, and whatever else you think about Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in their coverage of Jesus' life, we need not lose sight of the main reason that they exist. And they exist not to tell great stories, not to give historical accounts, although they do. They exist to introduce us and to grip us with one man, Jesus Christ. Each gospel represents Jesus and presents him from a different angle, from a unique perspective. Bible critics often look at the four gospels and they say, Aha, you see, Luke didn't say the same thing John said. And Matthew and Mark didn't say the same things that each other said. So there must be a flaw in the Bible. But what they fail to realize is that these four books are trying to do the impossible to describe and fully introduce us to the God-man Jesus, who is not one-dimensional, not two-dimensional, not three-dimensional, not even four-dimensional for the four Gospels that we have. He is infinite in all His dimensions. And these four Gospels simply try as best they can To describe an indescribable God. One from this angle. And another from this angle. And another from this. And yet another from this one. And they are trying to cover really what is impossible for us to cover with human words. With our limitations. We are trying to describe a limitless God. And yet John's gospel is brilliant. Even with the limitations of man, both the writer and the recipient, us, there is brilliance that needs to be remembered. We need to go back and we need to remember who Jesus is. You cannot say too much about Jesus, but it is altogether possible that we would say and think too little of Jesus. And I want to try to prevent that as much as possible. I want to open the Word of God so that you think as highly as you can, as much as you can, as lofty as you can about the person of Jesus Christ. John's Gospel, you'll remember as we stated many, many months ago when we began this study, fills many needed perspectives. He's known as a standalone Gospel, if you will, all of the other Gospels, Matthew Mark and Luke include parallel events. And John 
being aware of them. They, they were written before John wrote his gospel, and he's aware of what they've written. And so he goes and he fills in blanks and gaps, if you will, in their coverage. Because, again, you can't say everything that needs to be said. So John, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, does his best to fill in the gaps and cover perspectives that are unique. And so I want us to think about a few of these this morning as we ramp up and jump back into next Sunday, Lord willing, John chapter 6, and feed our minds from this introduction of who Jesus is. I want to call you to one word this morning. I want to call you to one action, and that is simply to remember. We need to be called to remember. It's easy to lose sight of who Jesus is and amidst all of the stories in any of the Gospels. It's easy to focus on his birth. It's easy to focus on a miracle. It's easy to focus on this, that, or the other. And to forget the real point of the story is Jesus himself. And so this morning is a call for you and I both to remember certain things about Jesus that have dominated. And we don't have time to go verse by verse or to cover everything that we've covered in the previous months, chapters 1 to 5. But I do want to give you some categories that as we go into chapter 6, you need to remember. You need to remember. And so let's begin this morning. I want you to remember the beginning. Look in John chapter 1 with me this morning, and we will begin by reading John chapter 1. Verses 1 to 18, and allowing that to serve as our tutor and our refresher course, if you will, before we dive back into the full study of the person of Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, referring to Jesus, the revelation of God. What do words do? Words reveal Jesus is the revelation of the Father. Therefore, he can appropriately be called the Word. And the Word was with God, the Father, the Spirit. Jesus, as the Son, was with them. And the Word was God. He is God of very gods, just as the Father is God, just as the Spirit is God, so is the Son. Together, from eternity past, He was with them as part of the Trinity. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. If you see something today, it is here because... Jesus. Everything that is, is a result of his work. In him, meaning Jesus, the word was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John, meaning the Baptist. John the Baptist, he came as a witness to testify about the light. Jesus, so that all might believe through him. He, John, was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world 
did not know him. He came to his own, meaning Jesus came to his own even specific nation, to the Jewish people who had been told he was coming. And those who were his own did not receive him. Even his own people rejected him in his day. But, verse 12, as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God. Even to those who believe on his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified about him and cried out, saying, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, He has explained Him. I want you to remember the beginning. Remember the beginning. What do we know about Jesus from His beginning, from the, from the outset of John's Gospel that needs to go with us as we continue on marching through this great Gospel? You need to remember this, that Jesus Christ is God. God of might and God of power. When we speak of remembering the beginning of one who has no beginning, it can be a, a bit confusing, can it? Because when we speak of Remembering the beginning, we are talking about the beginning of John's gospel, of our ability to read and comprehend certain things. Because Jesus Christ has no beginning. When we say remember the beginning, we say remember the beginning of John's record of Jesus. And that's how John begins his gospel. We are to know that we are speaking here of one who is eternal. In the beginning, before anything was, was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Because Jesus exists, before anything else, Jesus can then become the source of everything else, which we find To be true in verse 3, all things that have come into existence come into existence because Jesus Christ decreed it to happen. Jesus Christ, by divine fiat, by divine will, creates everything that is. You talk about power. Power to speak the world and everything in it into existence out of nothing. The Latin term is ex nihilo, from nothing, out of nothing. Jesus speaks at what power? What power? And as we go through the Gospel of John, every time we come upon a a particular event in Jesus' life, such as the one we covered last in John chapter 5, where Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda, you remember? 
and the lame man is laying by the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus says to him, I don't know what you're doing here, laying here, partaking in all the the superstitions and the old wives' tales about this little pond you're laying by here. I'm going to tell you, take up your mat and walk. And everybody is scandalized. They're shocked. We might even look at this and say, wow, how did he do that? The question is not, how did he do that? The the question is, how could you have forgotten? Forgotten what? He was in the beginning. And spoke all things into existence. You see, everything else that follows John chapter 1 verses 1 through 3 is filler. And I mean that reverently and respectfully. Everything else Jesus will do should not surprise you because you've already been told He can do anything and has done all things. He spoke all things into existence. He is a God of absolute, unbridled power. So why be surprised that He healed a lame man? Why be surprised as the God who is the source of all things that He knew the past and the sins of the woman at the well in Samaria whom He met. Why would you be surprised? He created her. He's everywhere. He's known her thoughts. He has seen her actions. Why be surprised? We've already been told who He is. We must remember the foundation of the beginning of this gospel that Jesus is the eternally existent Son of God, second member of the Trinity, who created all things. And so it's easy for us to go, you know, you're right. Thanks for the reminder. We need the reminder that, that I shouldn't be surprised when I see Jesus do all of these miracles, but here's where the power, the unbridled power of Jesus meets us in reality today. We should not be surprised when that same power that created the worlds, that healed the sick, that turned water into wine, that knew the woman's past, we should not be surprised or marvel that He has the power to call us from spiritual death to spiritual life. Why would you be surprised? Why would you be untrusting? That the same God who spoke the world into existence can call our dead hearts dead in sins to life and to faith in Him. That is not surprising when you know what else He's done. When you know who else He is, what He is, He is God of very God. He can do anything. It's not surprising that He has saved us. Or that He could save us. Everything comes into existence by Him. And that's why John begins as he does. He's a God to be remembered. Remembered as God of power. God of might. God of glory. And it is ultimately for our benefit that we remember this. 
so that our salvation, as John says, does not depend upon blood, nor the will of your own flesh, you thinking something's a good idea, and I'll, I'll do this, I'll make this happen, nor the will of man of someone else coercing you or motivating you to try to do this, but of God. That's how it got to be what it is. That's why we are who we are. Our faith has been brought about by this same Jesus who is and has been from the beginning, who did in the beginning create all things, who did at his appointed time speak into our life and raise us from a state of sin and unbelief to one of righteousness and belief in him. He did this, not us. What assurance. When we see Jesus to be who he is, don't forget that, brothers and sisters. As we go through the rest of the book, don't sit there in shock. Instead, marvel and say, you know, I was told about this. I was warned about this. I just needed to be reminded of it. And so here's another case in John 2 and John 3 and John 4 and John 5 and John 6 and on and on we go. This is typical for Jesus because Jesus is God, a very God, eternally existent. We need to be reminded about another aspect of the beginning Perhaps one not so pleasant, but still true. We need to be reminded not only of his power and his might, but of the opposition that Jesus faced. Look at verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Jesus, in all of his power and for all of his glory, shines into darkness. And the darkness, because of its darkness, because of the quality of its darkness... Does not comprehend it. That's why you can never present a holy Jesus in worldly means and expect the world to understand anything you're saying. Why? Because the darkness cannot comprehend it. They're prevented from it. It, it, it. You must never try to put Jesus in earthly means because earthly means will never describe a heavenly Jesus. And so Jesus, because he is not comprehended, verse 5, he is then rejected in verses 9 through 11. There was the true light, meaning Jesus, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He is the only source of salvation and revelation for all of mankind. There's not another one to come. There's not another way of salvation. There's not another source of salvation. Jesus alone is the true light, which having come into the world is the light for every man. Does this mean every man comprehends him, believes in him? Absolutely not. But he is the source of illumination. What did they do with that source of illumination? He was in the world and the world was made through him. His own creation, the very thing he spoke into existence. Feel the pain of this verse. The world did not 
know him. It did not have a connection or a relationship to him, even though he made it and how hurtful that is. As parents, we, we understand that our children could potentially say things that hurt us deeply because after all, we have loved them. We have brought them into this world and we have given them all things to sustain themselves in this world and we have poured our lives into them. And for them to turn around and say, I don't know you. You're foreign to me. You're a stranger to me. That's how the world treated Jesus. He was in a world made by him and through whom all things had been given to them. And the world does not know him. They reject him. Even to the point that he comes to his own people where he had more specifically spoken in the law, in the prophets, in the fathers, through the covenants. And they even have rejected him. What a travesty. Mankind, because we are all sinners. We, we, we dare not look at this and say, man, how? What is wrong with those people? How could they do that? Wrong question. The question is, how could I do that? Because prior to being saved by Jesus Christ, every one of us are are spoken of in these verses. A rejection of who he is. We are blinded by darkness. We are blinded by our own love for our natural state. Our pride refuses him. Our hatred of righteousness opposes him. And Our love of sin seeks to silence him because he speaks against it and thus speaks against us. This is going to become a pattern that you need to remember. How could they not love Jesus? I mean, after all, we're, I guess we're still in the Bible belt. How how could they not love Jesus? Everybody in Midland loves Jesus. No, they don't. Everybody... You know, in the southern part of the United States loves Jesus, right? Everybody in the United States loves Jesus. No, they don't. They may love a Jesus of their own imagination, but they don't love the Jesus of the Bible. It's patterned here for us in verses 9 through 12. But then it's repeated over and over and over again throughout the gospel. For example, we go to chapter 3. We remember this. We're reminded. Again, I, I said it to you before, but let me just remind you. Verses 1 through 18 of chapter 1 provide a roadmap for the entire rest of the gospel. It can all be, this is the skeleton upon which all the meat for the rest of the gospel can be hung. We know everything we know. We were told about it in chapter 1. So when we come to chapter 3, verse 17, we're not surprised. Verse 19, this is judgment that the light has come into the world and men loved the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. You come to John chapter 5 and we find the religious leaders, not, not the sinners, although they are, but the ones who thought themselves so righteous, so holy, so religious, Providing the the, the stiffest opposition to Jesus. They hate Jesus. 
They reject the light. They reject the very one who gave them the law that they think is going to save them, and it's not. Only the man can save them, not the law. And yet they hate Jesus, the giver of the law, who could in turn be their salvation for their gross violations of the law. The light comes into the world. The world rejects it. The light comes. Jesus comes to his own people. Those to whom he has spoken throughout the Old Testament and throughout their history. The the very people who walked through a sea on dry land because God opened it up. The very people whom God has provided for. Even they rejected it. God is always going to be opposed in a fallen world that is hostile to him. That's why we can't be shocked. If the world hated Jesus, it's going to hate us too. There's so much in the world going on around us and we're scanned. Oh, how could they? I just don't understand. Just remember, this is the same group of people on the same planet who hated your Lord. Don't think they're going to love you. They'll hate you just as they hated him. And it looks dark and it looks dreary in John chapter 1. Marvelous, powerful entrance of God into this world in human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ immediately meets opposition. Does that strike you funny? John is saying, I'm about to tell you the greatest News you've ever heard. God has come to be with you because he is for you. God has come down. And immediately John says, and just like that, he's rejected. It's kind of a bummer of a way to start your book. But it's the truth. But what is greater than the truth in that aspect is the truth that follows in verses 12 to 18. Because he is a God of might and a God of glory, he is also a God of overcoming grace. Men were not seeking God, let alone Jesus Christ. But that's okay. That's okay. We, we don't despair when we look around and we say, men don't seek Christ. Neither did you. Neither did I. Yeah, but, but it's bad news because no one's seeking after Jesus. That's okay. Because Jesus is seeking his own. Jesus will always get his man. Jesus will always get his woman. Jesus will always win. Though men do not seek Jesus Jesus always seeks his people. And so we rest in that. We're assured in that. Listen, if I came to Jesus, I'd be terrified I could fall away from Jesus. But because Jesus came to me, there's no chance of me being lost. Because Jesus has extended his grace to me. Look what he says in verse 12. But as many, there's the side of rejection, but, but here's the contrast. 
And it goes all throughout the book. But as many as received him. The ones who listened, the ones who saw, the ones who believed and received him to be who he is. To them, he gave the right to become the children of God. Who's doing the action here? Jesus. Jesus is securing us by giving us the right to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. That's how we come to him, by belief in his name, belief in who he is. And and, and it continues in verse 13. We were not born into his kingdom. We're not born again of blood. That is of heritage or ancestry like the Jews had thought. Nor of the will of the flesh, not because I've decided I will follow Jesus. Not because I met Jesus halfway. Not of the will of man because someone coerced us or forced us or tricked us into believing. But of God. Greatest phrase in all scripture. But God. But God. You rejected him. But he came for you. You can run, but you'll never hide. All things are laid bare before his sight. He will win. And so he is a God of overcoming grace. No sinner in his sinful state wants Jesus. Speaking to myself, my parents are right here on the front row. They'll vouch for I'm hard-headed. No, my wife can't because it's just been all bliss, you understand. All right, you know that's not true. But get this through your thick head too. Get this through your difficulty to wrestle with it as it is for me. Don't leave me up here alone. We need to realize this. He is a God who overcomes Don't sit there and say, well, I'll clean it up and I'll go to Jesus. That's that's what John's about. I just need to go to Jesus. You can't and you won't. He just told you you wouldn't. Verse 13, that's not how this works. But God, but God does. What changes our state from sinner to saint is not that we run to Jesus, it's that Jesus has come to us. This is a theme that's going to be picked up later on, and I want you to grasp the power of His overcoming grace. Remember that. It's important for the rest of the book. So go to chapter 5. I want to show you where this plays out for us. Chapter 5, verse 21, Jesus is, remember, this is what we last covered. He he is equating himself with God. He's saying, I, the Pharisees are mad. They say, well, only God can do that. Uh Uh-huh. That's me. What is one way that Jesus proves this to them? He says this, verse 21, For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, 
Even so, the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. He's not necessarily speaking of only physical life here. He's talking about spiritual life. All who believe in Jesus, we're never going to die again. Death is dead. Our bodies will be raised someday. But we can't die. But that life that goes on for eternity begins the very minute Jesus grants it to us. He gives eternal life to all those he wishes. Not who wish for him, but to whom he wishes. When he determines it's time, it's time. Well, I don't know. That takes me out of the equation. This is the point in which you drop to your knees and say, thank God that I'm out of the equation. Because if it were up to me, were it up to you, we would never choose God. If it were up to the Apostle Paul, formerly known as Saul, on his road, on his journey to Damascus, he would not have chosen God. But God had an appointed time for Paul, didn't he? And he drops Paul to the road and says, Paul, enough is enough. It's time. This is the Jesus presented in John chapter 1, verse 13. But of God. It's the same Jesus who's presented. And we find him later in John chapter 6. So flip over one chapter and we'll get here in a few weeks. In John chapter 6, verse 44. This is a hard verse to wrestle through. But it's not hard when you realize the foundation was poured in chapter 1. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. No one. No one. Say it again. No one comes to Jesus Unless the Father marks him out and draws him. And if that be the case, Jesus says, here's the promise. I will. When the Father draws him to me, I will raise him up on the last day. Why? Overcoming grace. Overcoming power. Some of you... Your testimony is that you wanted nothing to do with God too. Maybe you were saved later in life and you say, you know, I can go back and through tears recall what I was like. Some of you even here have said, well, I was an atheist. So God drew me. And man, once he did, there was no turning back. And now I'm assured in Jesus, because of Jesus, it wasn't me. It was him. Go further in John chapter 6 to verse 65. And he was saying, meaning Jesus, For this reason I said to you, no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. When it's granted by the Father. It's undeniable. You're not going to stop it. You're not going to stop him because he is an infinite God of overcoming grace. And that's the good news, brothers and sisters. 
And if that rings hollow in our ears, perhaps it's because we have not really grasped the magnitude of the problem being ourselves. It wasn't that bad. I didn't that much help. Oh, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. We are enemies of God, not just ambivalent towards God, enemies of God. Oh, we had to have an overcoming grace, a a God who overcomes our opposition to him. And that is what Jesus came to do, did he not? To seek and to save sinners. Ask the woman at the well in Samaria about overcoming grace. No Jew goes through Samaria, let alone sits down at a well in Samaria, let alone ask a Samaritan woman for water at a well in Samaria. And yet Jesus did. Why? Undeterred. He had a meeting. She had a meeting. She didn't know about it. Jesus knew about it. And he met her there and he brought her forgiveness and living water she knew nothing about but oh what a difference it made for her she runs back into the city you remember she didn't say come see what I found out what did she say come see a man come see a man He's told me everything I've ever done. Not only has he told me everything I've ever done, he's brought forgiveness because of what I've done. Because of who I am. Come see him. And the whole village goes out. And there is mass conversion. Many believed that day on a God of overcoming grace. What a Savior. What a Savior. And the same story is true for every one of us. We were all sitting by a well. Oh, we may not have had five husbands and a sixth live in as she did. But we all had our own skeletons and our own baggage and it's all equally sinful in God's eyes. That's okay. He's a God of overcoming grace. No sin too great that he cannot forgive. No sinner too far gone that he cannot seek and save. That is why he came. Remember that. You're going to need to remember that as you move through the rest of John's gospel in order for any of it to make any sense. So remember the beginning. This is how it began. And then quickly, two more things I want you to remember. Secondly, remember his introductions. You see, once people in John's gospel, and you'll remember this after I say it. Once people met Jesus, they couldn't help themselves but to introduce Jesus to others. They are so enamored with, rightly so, elated with, secured in, overjoyed by Jesus, they've got to go tell somebody. And it's not because somebody sat there and said, now, you must go do this. It's how do I not do this? 
You see, even his own cousin, John the Baptist, sees Jesus coming. And he has been waiting for this. And he just begins to declare from the rooftops, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every time Jesus walks in, what's John saying? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John, it's the third day we know. Yeah, but behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, John, we've got it. Yeah, but someone might not, so I'm going to keep saying it. John introduces Jesus over and over and over again. Then Jesus begins to meet his the men who would become his followers, his disciples. Jesus meets Simon Peter, and then Simon Peter runs and gets his brother Andrew. And the next day he meets Philip, and then Philip runs and gets Nathaniel. And they're all in, they're all in awe because Jesus demonstrates to them he's God. How else could you know I was taking a nap under the tree? You've got to be kidding me. You can't see over the horizon unless you're God. Thank you. They began going and telling other people and they become the men in the book of Acts who do what? Turn the world upside down. Did they turn the world upside down? Because they had been to seminary and earned a degree and knew Greek and Hebrew and could debate all the finer theological points. No, you know why they turned the world upside down? One reason, they introduced the world to Jesus. That's it. We complicate it so much and shouldn't. They simply went around the world introducing the world to Jesus. Telling people who he is. Telling people the marvelous things that he has done. And in every case, as Jesus meets these people that he is introduced to, he demonstrates his saving, sovereign power to them. Some of them can see it, and others can't. But every time Jesus is introduced, he demonstrates himself to be God of very God. Sovereign Savior on a mission that cannot fail. And gracious, even though he knows the depth of every thought of our own hearts, every sin things both thought of and actually committed, he knows it all, but his grace is far deeper than our sins. And the people that we've been introduced to in the first five chapters repeatedly are confronted by this reality. Let me give you one last point to remember so that you can leave here rejoicing this morning. I want you to remember Jesus' confrontations. See, there are certain people who are followers of one person who are never happy 
about Jesus' arrival on the scene. Satan and all of his followers have every intent to derail the ministry of Jesus. Even going back to the people who loved him, thought highly of him, but were uninformed as to what he was really there for, even his own mother, even his own siblings. At a wedding in Cana, Jesus, do us a miracle. That's not what I'm here for. It's not time. Don't get ahead of the schedule here. Yeah, but but you need to do it. I'll do it in my time. Friendly confrontations, and then there are hostile confrontations that seek to overthrow Jesus. I mean, very early on, they're wanting to kill Jesus, but because he's God and he's written the script, he's not going until it's time to go. Over and over, Jesus is threatened by the plans of his enemy and his enemies. And yet, here is where we leave rejoicing. Jesus never yields. Doesn't give in. Doesn't give up. He's never thrown off. And for us, that is great news because once Jesus has determined to accomplish his saving work in you, in me, and the people in John's gospel, there is no one, not even Satan himself, that is even going to cause the slightest stutter in his steps. To accomplish his mission. Jesus can't be derailed. He never yields. He never changes. He never redirects. He never has to recalculate. He stays on point, on mission, all the time. Even in chapter 5, as we've seen, the most hostile response to Jesus after he heals the crippled man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus doesn't shrink back. In fact, you go to verse 18, Jesus just doubles down. They're wanting to kill him. He knows it. Remember, he knows what's in their heart. You go back to chapter 2. He understands what's in man's heart. He knows what they're thinking. He's undeterred. They want to know, are you, are you actually equating yourself with God? I'm not equating anything. I'm telling you. I absolutely am God. And I absolutely am here to save sinners. The problem is not with me. The problem is with you. In the face of opposition, Jesus delivers unbridled truth. Chapter 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is. Now is. Say it one more time. Now is. Speaking of sinners. When they will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. You can't stop me. Because the hour now is. 
For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave the Son also to have life in himself, and he gave him, Jesus, authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. I will accomplish everything the Father has given me to do. And I will not yield, nor will I be deterred, until all has been accomplished. This is who Jesus is. This explains what's going to transpire for the rest of the gospel. Remember the beginning. Remember the confrontations. But more than anything, remember the overcoming grace. You can't stop him. Your sin cannot stop him. If he has laid his mark upon you, if he has determined to save you, you will be saved. You cannot run, sinner. You need to know that. Maybe someone is here this morning and you're running from God. But deep down inside, you know that you must turn to Jesus Christ and be saved. You know that destruction is at the end of your path. You cannot outrun Jesus. You cannot run farther than Jesus. Jesus will save. Do not be so foolish as to think you can get away. You can't. Maybe some of you are here this morning and you're saying, yeah, but you don't know what I've done. That's fine. I don't need to know. God already knows. And God cares what you've done. And he cares so much about what you've done that he sent his own son to hang in your place on a cross so that he could punish your sin upon his son instead of punishing it upon you. God does care about your sin. But he cares about it in such a way that he sent one to stand in your place. And Christ has absorbed all of the wrath of the Father against you on your behalf. And he offers you his life and takes your death. How about that? Overcoming grace indeed. He's undeterred. He's unstoppable. You can't run from the Savior. There's nothing you can do that he cannot save. And so you're here this morning. Maybe you've forgotten where we've been for five chapters. Well, let me remind you and then let me exhort you. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Simple faith. I believe you are the Son of God as you said you were. I believe I'm a sinner just as you revealed sin in these other people. You've revealed it to me. I know I'm a sinner. But more than this, I know that your grace saves. Your grace forgives. Save me, Lord. And follow hard after Jesus. Rest on Jesus. It'll be a great day next Sunday when we get back into John 6.
Jesus doesn't come between now and next Sunday, which would be okay, right? But what a great time awaits us in chapter 6 as we continue on in the book. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Jesus, you are the Alpha, and you are the Omega. You are the beginning, and you are the end. And because you are the beginning, you've created all things, and all things come from you. Because you are the end, all things will be measured by you and brought to completion by you. Though you have been rejected by all men, myself included, everyone, even those who believe now at one point rejected you, you were undeterred. You were unstoppable because of your overcoming grace to accomplish your saving purposes. There's only one right response to who you are, Lord Jesus, and that is to come in faith, believing you to be who you've said you are, confessing our sins and trusting only your mercy to save us. And so, Lord Jesus, by your Holy Spirit who remains with us, there are those here this morning who need to be humbled and to bow before you and to confess who you are, what they are, and their need for you, and to simply seek your forgiveness. Not by their works, not by a formulaic prayer, but simply crying out to you that you would forgive. And in crying out, knowing that you do when they ask you. Father, forgive for the sake of Jesus, because of Jesus. Forgive, and you do. We're thankful for such a Savior who you have sent, Father, your only Son, Jesus Christ. May we make much of him now in our life for those who believe. May we be assured. May we be confident. May we be joyful. May we be eager to make Christ known. May we be the ones standing before the congregation and the crowd of a lost world, eager to make introductions that will never quite measure up because of the great God that you are. But may we be eager to make them and do with the Spirit's help our best to make Christ known. Knowing that we can never oversell who you are. So give us confidence in who you are, Lord. Go with us now as we are dismissed. Assure us that we are Christ if we have believed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.